Thank you, Will. It has been truly one of my distinct joys in life to be able to know Will and Grace for, I guess, probably eight or nine years now and to work together with Will both at Faith and to be a part of what you all are doing with him here. I'd like you to turn to Hebrews chapter 3, and I'm going to read the first 14 verses, the text that we have printed in our uh, program, verses 12 through 14, is what we'll be concentrating on. But as I got into this and after your bulletin was printed, I realized that we really need to take a look at the verses that precede the main text that's written in the program. Therefore, holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling, fix your thoughts on Jesus, the apostle and high priest whom we confess. He was faithful to the one who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Jesus has been found worthy of greater honor than Moses, just as the builder of a house has greater honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but God is the builder of everything. Moses was, a, was faithful as a servant in all God's house, testifying to what would be said in the future. But Christ is faithful as a son over God's house, and we are his house if we hold on to our courage and the hope of which we boast. The house is a reference to the church. So as the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in the rebellion during the time of testing in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, and for 40 years saw what I did. That is why I was angry with that generation and I said, their hearts are always going astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. See to it, brothers, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. But encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. We have come to share in Christ if we hold firmly till the end the confidence we had at first. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, I pray that you would be with each of us, that you would take the words that have been read, the words that we may have in front of us, either at home or here. And I pray, Lord God, that you would make them understandable to us, and I pray that you would drive them deeply into our hearts. I pray, Father, for those who may be present, who are holding on to some known sin. I pray, Father, that you would point it out to them, that they would truly know it, know the impact that it has on their faith, on their lives, and that they, by your Spirit, would give it up to the cross of Jesus and the forgiveness that's available to us when we confess our sins. We thank you, Father, that you are one who is willing in Christ Jesus to forgive us of every sin and to cleanse us completely. I pray, Father, that you would keep my lips from communing, communicating anything that would be misunderstood. Father, anyone who thinks about communication, 
Anyone who's in relationship with anyone knows how difficult communication can be. Father, often the person speaking uh, doesn't uh, encode the, the thoughts that they would like and the way that they would like to do it. And then, Father, those of us who are receiving uh, often don't get the message that is intended to be communicated. But, Father, we claim the promise that your spirit is present with us. We have gathered in Jesus' name. And we know that he can keep my lips from speaking error and that he can open the hearts of those who hear so that they would hear what you would want them to hear. Father, I pray that you would work that grace in our midst today and with those who are watching or listening from home. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. By nature, we long to be autonomous. We want to do what we want to do in the way we want to do it when we want to do it. It's the way we come into the world. You see the desire baked into the three-year-old child who turns to a parent and says, I don't want to do it. You hear about it from teachers who have students who from time to time will say to them, you can't make me do anything I don't want to do. I think we witness this inner desire for autonomy when you hear maybe a wife say, there's no way I'm going to submit to him. Or when you watch a husband who seems to have no intent at all to loving his wife in the way Christ loved the church and gave himself up for the church. The longing for autonomy lies deep within the human heart and it's often been witnessed by the church member who gets up the courage to go to another church member who's committing some kind of sin, and with meekness and humility in his or her heart, says to that person, you know, what you're doing is sinful. It's against God's word. I love you. I care about you. I want you to confess that sin and to turn from it. And then here's the person respond by saying, what gives you the right to tell me how to live my life? You can put human beings in a perfect environment with but one limitation to their freedom, and they long to be free of all restraint. We know that from what happened in the Garden of Eden when God said in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. And our first parents did just what God told them not to do. I was reading yesterday again in Genesis chapter 3, uh, verses 1 through 6, and we know that Satan was present to tempt Eve to violate the one command that God had given them as far as prohibition is concerned. And when I read it, I think you can build the case, although the scripture isn't totally clear, that she had been thinking about that tree, what it would be like to be free of that restraint that God had placed upon them when Satan came and had the conversation with her that ultimately led to the original sin, the first sin. First point this morning, if you have received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, you've repented of your sins and accepted the forgiveness that flows from the glorious cross of Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. The Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 19, section 1 states this, 
They whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his spirit, can neither totally nor finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere to the end and be eternally saved. Now that is a very important tenet of Reformed faith. We call the doctrine the perseverance of the saints. It's part of that tulip, the five basic principles of Reformed uh, faith. But it's not just a Presbyterian belief by any means. Lots of evangelicals who study God's word and, and teach it are committed to that doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. Lorraine Bettner, in his book, The Reformed Doctrine of Predestination, writes this. The saints in heaven are happier, listen to this, but no more secure than our true believers in this world. Did you hear what he said? He's saying that people who've already attained the throne room of God are happier. They're removed from sin and all the effects of the fall, but they are no more secure than you can be. You are in this world if you know Jesus as your Savior and Lord. If that is what Scripture teaches, that is incredibly good news. You're as secure now as if you were in heaven. Now, there is a war that rages for your soul. Satan is continually at work to destroy your faith. John Rapon, I guess that's how it's pronounced, collected a lot of hymns into um, an anthology of hymns. And one of the hymns that he collected in his anthology in 1787 was How Firm a Foundation. We don't actually know who wrote it. But in that hymn that you probably know well, uh, we find this. The soul that on Jesus has leaned for repose, I will not, I will not desert to his foes. That soul, though all hell should endeavor to shake, I'll never, no never, no never forsake. Now, our ultimate authority for what we believe is not the Westminster Confession of Faith. It's not what theologians say. It's not what hymn writers have written. Everything that we believe must come, must be taught in Holy Scripture and come from Holy Scripture. The good news is Holy Scripture teaches everywhere the perseverance of the saints. Now let me just give you a sampling of some of the scriptures that teach if a person is truly regenerated by God's grace, if they truly trust in Jesus' work at Calvary, that they can never be separated from God's love and from their salvation. Jesus himself says in John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. In John chapter 10, verses 27 through 29, our Lord promises this, My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. 
No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. I've read that so many times over the years, and what I think is being communicated to us is that when you trust Jesus, you are in Christ's hand. Christ's hands is in the Father's. Nobody can ever pry you loose. The Apostle Paul tells us in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 14, by one sacrifice, he, that is Jesus Christ, has made us perfect forever, those who are being made holy. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, a verse that would be good for everyone to co commit to memory, Paul writes, being confident of this, that he, God, who has begun a good work in you, will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's Christ's return. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, those magnificent words, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now, I could read you scriptures for a couple of hours, I believe, that teach the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, at least until the end of the time that we have in this service, that teach that God graciously chose you to receive saving grace if you have believed Jesus or will believe him, that Christ made full satisfaction at Calvary for every sin that you would ever commit, and that the Holy Spirit called you to faith and new life, and that he continues to work in you so that over time you are being more and more conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. With all of this revelation that God has given, it's just reasonable to, to conclude that he who has done this saving work is doing this saving work will not let his plan for you fail. He will not change his mind with regard to saving you. Even fickle parents who adopt children into their families don't send them back when the children disappoint them. Jehovah said in Malachi 3.6, I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. God hangs on to his own even when they slide into sin and disappoint him. As long as you live in this world, I don't care how old you are, how young you are, there's the very real possibility that you may backslide. You may appear for a time to have lost your faith. You may lapse into a sinful lifestyle that will grieve the Father's heart, that will bring incredible pain to you and to your family and friends. And sin has a wide impact on people around us. It cost you far more than you ever thought your sin could ever cost you. But you will not fall from grace God will not allow that to happen. He who has begun a good work in you, Philippians 1, 6 again, will carry it to completion. It's the promise of God. Now, God's promise that we are forever uh, his in spite of our propensity to wander from him is one of the greatest comforts in this life. 
Our eternally secure future does not rest on our changeable nature and our faithlessness, but on the immutable, the unchangeable decision of God and the faithfulness of an omnipotent God. Well, let me ask you a question then. If this is true, why are there scriptures that warn us about the danger of falling from faith? And there are many. Sometimes the same writer who tells you that your soul can never be lost in one place will warn you elsewhere in his writings to make every effort to keep from falling from faith. Now, you have printed in your bulletin, Hebrew, uh, no, you don't, but in Hebrews 10, 14, the sacred writer tells us, by one sacrifice, he, Jesus Christ, has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. Now, this passage clearly teaches that there was a one-time payment that was made for your sin by Jesus Christ when he died and rose again, and that those for whom Jesus has made this payment have been made perfect and holy by it. And that's a one-time kind of thing. It's forever. They cannot ever become unholy. Yet, in the text you do have before you, in Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 through 14, the same writer writes, Take care, brothers and sisters, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed, if indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end. So here the writer's instruction, the same writer that said you can never fall away, his instruction is to guard your heart against unbelief because a heart that lacks faith causes one to fall away from God. We're told that we experience Christ in the end of life only if we hold on to faith until the end of life. Now, all of Hebrews chapter 3 is a sober warning against believers' failure to persevere in faith until the end. And that's why I read the first part of that chapter. The whole chapter is about that. Those to whom this warning is written are addressed in 3.1 as holy brothers, as Christians, people who share in a heavenly calling, the calling of God to Christ Jesus. Paul in 3.1 instructs these believers to consider Jesus. Now, what are they to consider about Jesus? Well, they are to consider the faithfulness of Jesus to his calling, the calling that God gave to him. And we are told there that Jesus was called to be an apostle and a high priest. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle is someone who is sent as an ambassador from someone very important, could be a king. In this case, it's God. Sent as an ambassador to speak for the king. What is a priest? A priest is a mediator between God and man, one that makes things right between an offended God and the person who's doing the offending. 
So this is Jesus' calling, we are told. This is what he was called to do. In verse 2, we are told he was faithful to the one who appointed him. We're to ponder Jesus' performance in his roles, and we're told by the writer of Holy Scripture that he was absolutely faithful. He ran his course with perfect obedience until the end. Jesus told his father in that great high priestly prayer in John 17, verse 4, I have glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. He did it completely. In John 19, 30, Jesus hangs on a cross. He's about ready to give up his spirit to his heavenly father. And you probably all know what he cries. It is finished. The writer of Hebrews says that we are to follow Jesus' example and being faithful to the end. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 2 and 5, the writer brings up Moses as an example of one who has been steadfast in faith. The writer tells us that Moses was faithful in all of God's house. Now, the author is careful to point out that Jesus was faithful, but he's far superior than Moses was. God's house, I mentioned earlier, is the church, the people of God. Moses served faithfully in the house or church as a servant. But Christ is the architect, the builder of the house. And he is the son over God's house. And I am so glad that a human example is used here because we know that it's impossible for us to... uh, commit to being faithful in the way that Jesus is, that we do sin. Moses was faithful, we are told, but there were times in his life when he did sin. But his life was one of submitting to the Lord Jesus. Now notice the warning given in 3.6. The true members of God's house, the church, are only those who persevere to the end of life. We are his house, we are told, if we hold to our courage and the hope in which we boast. Persistent endurance in faith is the proof of true faith. Now, you will occasionally stumble, we may, on this mountain trail that we are climbing, this pilgrimage of faith. We may occasionally slide back and lose some ground. We may wonder at times if we're even on the mountain. But for true believers, the desire to climb the mountain always comes back, and we keep on climbing. The doctrine of the perseverance of the saints uh, doesn't teach that we repent and trust Jesus and then do nothing. We work to hold fast to our confidence and the hope of which we boast. Now, Paul gives his readers an example of what falling away looks like, and we call that apostasy to abandon the faith, or to fall away. In Hebrews 3, 7 through 11, he reminds his readers of how the Israelites did. They started out well, trusting the Lord. They went out into the desert. And then in time, they grumbled and complained, and they disobeyed. They had seen the mighty hand of God at work. And then after a while, their walk was marred by persistent unbelief and disobedience. In verse 10, God is quoted as saying, I was provoked with that generation. They always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. God was angered uh, by their rebellion, their failure in faith. 
He swore an oath that they would not enter Canaan, that generation. And you probably know the story that everyone 20 and up in age died in the wilderness during those years of wilderness wanderings. The people who had not trusted Jesus, uh, not trusted to go in, uh, God to go into the promised land, they died. They died prematurely, many of them. In John 4.16, we're told that God is a God of love, but God hates disobedience, which at its core is a failure to trust that God's way is best. God often gives rebels vast amounts of time to repent of their sin and turn back to him. But we're told in Exodus 34 that he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And I would just stop and say, if you who are here or you who are watching are holding on to some kind of sin and you think God doesn't care about it because in his, in his forbearance, in his long-suffering, he has not corrected you yet or you have not felt that correction uh, for your sin, I would say don't presume upon God. Give up that sin. Ask for the Spirit to help you to give it up. We're not sufficient to win the victories over sin and our own strength. People don't go directly from trusting Christ and obeying him. And those two are, are linked. The old hymn got it right, trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. So they don't go from turning from trusting Christ and obeying him to giving up the faith in one fell swoop. There is generally a long and gentle descending path that leads from faith to apostasy, falling away from faith. Our text describes the process. Look at it. Sin deceives you. Paul personifies sin and talks about the deceitfulness of sin. Sin comes to us and says, God won't care if you do things your way and you don't obey him. Nobody will know. It won't hurt anyone. That's the way sin comes to our heart, to our conscience. God wants you to be happy. He wants you to be fulfilled. You'll be happier if you don't do it God's way, if you do it your way. Sin always replays the, the Satan-Eve conversation. Did God actually say you shall not? You will not suffer consequences. God is putting restraint upon you because he doesn't want you to be a fulfilled person. Then the specific sin that we commit or sins cause calluses to form on our heart if we don't repent, if we don't turn from those sins and ask God's forgiveness. Our writer says our heart is hardened by that deceitfulness of sin. Sin that at first causes pangs of conscience, we're troubled by our sin, after a while doesn't bother us any longer. And at some point, the heart which has repeatedly disobeyed God and refused to confess sin and turn from it leads us to fall away from the living God. Now remember, Paul is warning people in 3.12 and 3.1 whom he calls brothers and holy brothers who share in the heavenly calling. He is addressing Christians. He's addressing you. He's addressing me. We could be on the path that leads to unbelief. We need to examine our hearts by God's spirit. 
We need to ask him to help us to see if there be any sin in us, like the psalmist says. And we need to see that sin as offensive to God. And again, we need to give those sins up before we are hardened by the deceitfulness of sin and fall away from the living God. For we only share in Christ if indeed we hold our original confidence, our faith firm to the end. Why does the Holy Scripture post such severe warnings about the danger of falling away from faith if the Westminster Confession teaches that those whom God hath accepted in his beloved, effectually called and sanctified by his Spirit, can neither finally fall away from the state of grace, but shall certainly persevere therein to the end and be saved? Here's the answer. It is theoretically possible for a believer to become so hardened by repeated unconfessed sin that he or she will reject the faith completely and suffer the consequences of eternity apart from God. It's theoretically possible, but God will not permit that to happen. One of the great uh, Princeton Dons of years ago, Princeton Seminary professors, A.A. Hodge, who was uh, in the late, mid to late 1800s as a professor at Princeton, explained this far better than I can. He said, God secures the perseverance in holiness of all his people by the use of means adapted to their nature as rational, moral, free agents. Viewed in themselves, they are always, as God warns them, unstable, and therefore, as he exhorts them, must diligently cling to his grace. It is always true also that if they apostatize, they shall be lost. But, very important, the means of these very, by the means of these very threatenings, his spirit graciously secures them from apostasy. What he's saying is that the severe scriptural warnings God has given us that warn of a very real danger of losing our salvation are part of what God uses to keep that from ever happening. Even with these warnings, if we were left to our own devices, we would fail in faith. But God warns us from without but he also works within us by his spirit to give us the ability to perform through the risen Christ. In Ezekiel 36, 27, God promised, I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. The spirit of God moving us to confess our sin, to repent, and to keep from ending up with the disaster of a failed faith. Some years ago, I was in Little Bighorn, Montana. I've been there actually a couple times. And of course, you know, that's the place where George C. Custer was massacred by the Lakota Sioux with 200 of his uh, troopers. And I'm a history major. And I like to see everything when I go to a historic site. And there was deep grass, and I wanted to kind of walk around and you know see the places where the soldiers dropped. Uh, and a standard sign, you know, stay on the path, wouldn't have done anything much for me. 
But there was a sign there that kept this rebel who wants to do things his way on the pathway. And here's what it said. Stay on the path. You are in rattlesnake country. Now, I'm a rebel, but I wasn't going to violate that uh, particular sign. It got compliance for me. You live in spiritual rattlesnake country. I do. The viper that will kill our souls is sin. God told Cain in Genesis 4-7 that sin is crouching at the door. It desire, its desire is for you. You know, picture a lion ready to pounce on its prey. That's how sin is with us. The scriptural warnings which warn us of the eternal death that sin brings are to keep us on the path of faith that ends in eternal rest and blessedness that God has provided for his children in heaven. Believers persevere in faith. Warnings of apostasy aid in our perseverance. Perseverance requires connectedness. Listen to this, please. It's so important. It is extremely dangerous to seek to live your faith without being well-connected to a local church like that which God is establishing in this place. It's so important that you be connected. To not do that is to be like a person in the 1840s trying to get from St. Louis area to California on your own. It's theoretically possible that you could have done that in your wagon with your family alone, but the probability that you'll get there was very, very remote. You wouldn't get through Indian territory. You could pull it off theoretically, probability very low. So what did people do? They banded together in wagon trains. Wagon trains of 40 families to 100 would go across the plains. And of course, that helped to guarantee, not completely in the illustration, of course, they all break down, but to guarantee that people would get there. The book of Hebrews was written to people who are members of local churches. Look again at 12 to 13 as we close. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, regularly, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin, for we share in Christ, if indeed we hold original confidence firm to the end. Do you see what God is assuming in those verses? He's assuming that Christians are living their lives together in close communion in churches. He assumes that we are in such close connection with other believers in our churches that we are able to comply with what he has asked us to do. We're, willing, we're able to see and notice sin in other believers. We're also connected well enough that they know we care about them and love them, that we go to them and point out to them uh, their lack of conformity to the law of God. And when we do that because we're connected, the people we go to will listen and consider what we have to say. I can tell you after lots of years' experience in church life that the process doesn't work unless there is a connection between the exhorter and the one who is exhorted. 
If the person pointing out the sin is not in relationship with the sinner, then the sinner's response is always the natural one. What gives you the right to meddle in my life? In 1 Corinthians 12, 12, Paul compares the church to the human body. He says there's an organic connection between church members that is like the connectedness of the organs of our physical bodies. And based on the spirit-created union between us in the church, Paul wrote that members of the church, 1 Corinthians 12, 25, should have equal concern for each other. Now, I'll tell you one of the things I'm concerned about with COVID. We more and more have been forced to not live our lives in close connection to one another. And when this is all over, we have got to get back to the connectedness that we once had so that all of this can work. It's an important part of what we are to do, to exhort one another, to point out to one another our sins and our and our shortcomings in a loving way when that is necessary. And I, you know, my wife and I, we watch a lot of TV uh, programs and, and virtual church, but we've got to get back when it's safe to interacting with each other so that this can work well. Hebrews 3.13 is not a suggestion. It's a command for each Christian. If you knew that I was sinning and I'm a part of this congregation, it's not an option for you to not point out to me where I am coming short of God's law. To do it lovingly, but to come to be bold and do it. If you don't, according to to what we've read in verses 13 and 14, my soul is in danger. You can't put it off until my heart is hardened. You've got to come. It's part of the means of grace to me. Are you your brother or sister's keeper? The answer to the question is absolutely. And part of the way that he or she is kept in faith, kept from the terrors of hell, is by you caring about him or her enough to speak up, to confront them when you see them living in sin. If you refuse to do that, become like a person who is given the signs, stay on the path, rattlesnake country, who never went out and posted the signs. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the attention of your people to not my words, but to yours. And I pray, Father, that we would think about what you have said in Hebrews chapter 3. Maybe even go back and look at them again and study them on our own, think through what has been said, see where we need to apply the, the truth to us. Father, help me to do it. It's very hard for me to go and confront people. But Father, I know it's a part of grace to them Uh, the plan that you have for keeping them in faith. Father, it could be that there are some here who don't yet know Jesus. We've been preaching to Christians, and the text is primarily to Christians. But Father, I pray if there's one here who today is uh, being prompted by your Spirit to repent of their sins, they've seen sin, they've seen it in themselves, they've seen how God has uh, viewed sin, I pray, Father, that they would give it up and accept Jesus, ask him into their lives, and reach out to uh, a leader in this church, maybe to uh, Pastor Stern, and talk about what they have done, even as we end this prayer. We pray in Jesus' name.